You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Ellen Yin. It's really when someone says, I think differently about something now. I'm like, oh, that's the magic. That's the true magic is when someone's brain expands a little bit in a way that they maybe couldn't have had they not been exposed to someone's story. Ellen Yin is the founder and host of Cubicle to CEO, a podcast that shares transparent insights from self-funded six, seven, and eight-figure businesses. That's right. Reaching more than 100,000 women monthly, this media platform asks successful entrepreneurs the business questions you can't Google. I have been following Ellen for about a year now, and I have enjoyed her podcast so much that I decided to reach out to her to hear her origin story. How did this all get started? I promise you, this is a conversation you'll want to hear. Please enjoy my conversation with Ellen Yin. Ellen, I am so excited to talk to you today. We met early this year in 2023 at Alice Parks Conference. At Elevate. Right? At Elevate, exactly, which was a phenomenal experience. You spoke there and I went up to you and I said, hey, Ellen, 
I'd love to have you on to done for the podcast. You were very gracious and said, let's do it. So here we are after, after a little creative scheduling, right? Yes. And I'm just thrilled to hear your story of cubicle to CEO. But before we dive into that, I want, because I know you are a Pacific Northwest area person. I believe you live in Oregon. Is that right? Yes. Good memory. Okay. Yes. Portland. I'm going to ask you, where is your favorite restaurant? If you could take me anywhere, <sighs> if there's a spot that you just love, or maybe is a great place to take people who are new to Portland, or just your favorite spot in general, where would you go? That's such a hard question because it's it's so hard. So I live in Salem, which is about okay. an hour south of Portland. And I grew up in Corvallis, which is a small college town. So there's not an immediate restaurant that pops to mind. But when I think about growing up, like the restaurants that kind of hold some nostalgia for me or that I think, you know, I would always be in the mood for. Yes. A couple come to mind. There's there's two different Indian restaurants in my hometown that I love. Um, one is called Evergreen. The other is Nirvana. And then there's actually this hole in the wall Chinese kitchen that's behind or it's like part of a grocery store, but it's in the back of a grocery store. Yes. And I cannot remember what the name is. Cause I just go to the grocery store and you go behind, sure. you know, but they have such good authentic dishes that are more, you know, authentic Chinese food rather than like Americanized Chinese food. Of so course. I, I think of places like that. I just, I find that my favorite restaurants tend to be not very pretentious. They're very right. um, authentic, authentic. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So this place that's in the back of a grocery store, do you know the name of the grocery store? Oh my goodness. I, is it in your hometown? It is. It is. Because I can see the street, but I don't I don't look at signs that much. Are you Chinese American? I am. Yes. Okay. So I love when people pick a place that speaks to where they come from, their culture, their heritage. And the fact that you love this little spot must mean A, that it's really good. And yeah. B, that it, it brings back fond memories. And that's what this question is all about, because it really is the beginning of trying to understand someone and, and where they came from. Yeah. I know food has a way of doing that, of connecting people and it does. totally escaping my mind at the moment. <laughs> I totally understand. So tell me about growing up in that small town in Oregon. What was it like? What was your childhood like? And did your parents have like so many families of immigrants? Did they have a strong sense of what you should do and be? Absolutely. So I'm actually first generation. I immigrated with my parents to the States when I was three. And I do remember growing up being surrounded by a lot of other immigrant families uh, who had, you know, similar backgrounds as us. And it, it was a really rich community, rich in the sense, of course, not monetary, but rich in the sense of like culture and connection. So mm. I feel very fortunate that even though I grew up here and I'm very westernized in a lot of ways because I went to school here and, you know, uh, work here, but I still felt very connected to my culture because of my, not just my parents, but my parents' friends. And I remember so many holidays because we didn't have extended family here. We were, you know, doing potlucks as families together or going on camping trips together or, you know, Friday nights going to Chinese school after mm. regular school. So there were all these little things throughout my childhood that helped me feel connected to my culture. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. And what about your parents? Did they have a dream for you? And do you feel like you kind of mimicked what they wanted for you? Or did you kind of deviate from that path? Oh, I definitely deviated from the path of how they thought 
my life would look, but I'm not sure that they had any sort of set image in terms of a career path. That was one thing that was actually quite different, I would say, about my parents. Most Chinese immigrant families, you know, the parents are pretty centered on you having a career track that is proven, stable, high <laughs> Doctor, income. Doctor, lawyer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, the typical tropes. Um, my parents were very strict growing up, but that was the one piece that they never locked in on. We want you to be this career. For them, they wanted us to explore our creativity and our passions as long as we were academically successful, mm, they didn't care. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. They didn't care so much, you know, what what route that took us. So, for example, when I first went to college, I was majoring in broadcast journalism, which mm. in and of itself is already kind of a different right. Path. Right, you're already like joined the circus at this point. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So they were very very supportive of that. Ultimately, I actually ended up getting my degree in kinesiology or exercise sports science at the time it was called, which also again very not expected. But I think for them it was really. They wanted us ultimately to be happy, but they didn't because their own lived experiences had only showed them a certain path to success, you know, go to school, maybe get advanced degrees, find a good paying job and work your way up because they had never been exposed to any other form of success. It felt really risky and scary to them when I did, you know, graduate school and got a job that I said, hey, I'm going to quit this job and I don't know what's next for me. And it wasn't even to start a business. So it really was just like, I'm going to quit. End of story. There is no other, you know, plan. And I think through what I've built over the last five and a half years, their their minds have expanded quite a lot to see, oh, there are other ways to create success in this world. And because of that, I think my younger sisters have actually benefited from, <laughs> from maybe me being the test guinea pig for yes. my parents to relax a lot on, on how they parent. Well, I love the name of your podcast, From Cubicle to CEO, because it's very clear, it's concise, and it sort of like conjures up a vision and a dream of people who are stuck in a role that they want to break out of and they want to seize opportunity in different ways. It says it all in just a few sentences. So it's like a really beautifully crafted name. Thank I'm you. wondering, did you have a moment, will you take me to your cubicle moment where you were in a situation and you said to yourself, I can do more, I want to do more? Absolutely. So you're right. The name of our podcast, Cubicle to CEO, was derived as a reflection of my own journey. And my one and only cubicle job was in 2017, I worked for a healthcare company in my hometown and I worked as a marketing PR coordinator. So I was in the field that I, you know, still in some ways work in, but it was in an industry and at a company that I did not feel like I was growing in, you know, mm. the, the healthcare industry is very, bureaucratic in terms sure. of, you know, very limiting in terms of creativity. And I, I think that's the one key thing I always wanted from a job. It wasn't that I had this picture in my mind of, I can only be happy if I have X role or X job. It was more so as long as I felt like my creativity was being fostered and that I was learning new things and being challenged by new things, I could really be happy in a lot of different roles, even mm -hmm. not as my own employer or entrepreneur. And my first job out of college was a great reflection of that. But this second job, my cubicle job wasn't. And so I was only about 10 months in actually when I left without a backup plan. And I 
had decided to quit even earlier, like mentally had decided to quit even quiet quitting. Yeah. <laughs> you were quiet quitting before anyone was quiet quitting. Yeah. And, did it, and you said that your parents, it felt risky to your parents. Did it feel risky yeah. to you? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I realized, okay, there are no guarantees, right? You know, I could leave this job and it could take me well over a year to land in something else that I might be happy with. But no, in the sense that I had made a series of decisions already in my life at that point that had set me up to be in a place where I could be a little bit more risky. So just to give context to that, I was 23 at the time, right? So already I'm in a very specific moment in my life where I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have a whole lot of responsibility outside of myself. I had also just graduated college the year prior and at the time had chosen after graduation to move back in with my parents to save money. Smart. And then in college, I actually... So the reason that I originally started in broadcast journalism and then eventually graduated with a degree in kinesiology was because I went to USC my freshman year, and then I transferred home to Oregon and went to Oregon State for the rest of my college time because after my freshman year, even though broadcast journalism was my dream and I wanted nothing more than to be a TV anchor someday, I realized when I was looking at my financial aid for the following year and projecting it out over the remaining three years I had... I was going to graduate with more than six figures in debt, I think around 200,000 if I remember correctly. And I just couldn't stomach making that decision. And so I I gave up my dream school and what I thought was my dream job. And I transferred home and at Oregon State, they didn't have a journalism program at the time. So at the time I had just started my fitness journey, I had fallen in love with weightlifting and I thought, hey, this is an interesting thing. Again, curiosity leading here. So I said, why not get a degree in, in, you know, things that allow me to study the human body and anatomy and physiology. And so I had no intention really of using it professionally, but that's kind of what led me down that path. But because I did that and because I worked all through college and continued applying for scholarships, I was fortunate enough to actually graduate debt-free. And that set me in a completely different place, I think, in my life than most people do at that time. Right. First of all, let me just stop you there. Thank you for sharing that because I think it's such a crucial part of your journey. As people think about jumping from the cubicle to doing something else, you really do have to think strategically about your life and setting yourself up for success. And my gosh, the maturity that that showed when you were in college to leave your dream school, just because you knew that then you'd be kind of shackled to that debt and you'd have to take a job. You weren't sure. It was such a smart move. And it's also a very ego-less move. Sometimes Mm -hmm. in life, you have to make ego-less moves because everyone wants to graduate with a degree or with from a prestigious university and and Oregon State obviously is different than USC but still yes. really quality but the, it speaks to that right right take me to that first freelance gig that you got for $300 what was it and how did it feel to earn your own money for even if it's like piecemeal work there's something about it when somebody pays you directly isn't there yes absolutely because it it proved to me that I had skill sets and a a knowledge and experience that could be monetized outside of a W-2 job, Mm. right? And that gave me the courage and the motivation to say, okay, what what else can I do with this? If this is possible, what else? So that gig actually ironically came from a contact I had made with a coworker at the corporate job that I left. So in his corporate role, he was a project manager. That's how I knew him through, you know, various 
corporate projects that we were working on. But on the side, him and his wife also at the time owned two local coffee stands. So that was their family business. And I actually didn't know very much about that family business until the tail end of my time working at that job. And when I left, you know, there were no plans to work together in any other capacity. But when I was in that interim of looking for jobs, I think it was actually my fiance. I don't even know if I've ever shared this story on any other podcast, but I think it was my fiance who one day, now fiance, soon to be husband, who was talking to this guy at work one day in a meeting. He was like, oh, you know, he asked about me like, oh, how's Ellen doing? And I think Dustin was like, oh, you know, you know, she's still looking for jobs and, um, you know, looking for something hopefully that will allow her to utilize her social media marketing skills. And I think that just kind of like turned on a little light bulb for this, this guy, Chris, he was like, oh, well, you know, we have these coffee stands and we've been trying to, you know, market ourselves on social, but we're not very good at it. Does she, mm. you know, does she know anything about Instagram? And so mm. Dustin brought this idea home to me and I got really excited and I was like, oh, okay. Like, let me put together a whole proposal. Let me see if I can share with them the value that I can bring. So I remember we actually went to dinner together, like the four of us. It was like a whole formal process. I typed out this whole proposal. I went over it with them at dinner. And it's kind of funny looking back because, you know, it was for a $300 project, but I took it very seriously. And uh, when they said, yes, I was over the moon to have this opportunity to, to showcase and, and to test really what it could look like for me to continue to grow through acquiring new clients and bigger contracts. So you get your first gig for $300. That must've felt great. How do you begin to create momentum And is your idea to have the media company or is your idea at this point just to have your own marketing company? So this is what is really cool, I think, about my journey and what I really hope to impart on not only your listeners, but anytime I get a chance to speak in front of a group is, I know this is like a tangent to your question, Kate, but I think it's important to realize that oftentimes when people start their own businesses or their entrepreneurs, they try to plan out every step. But Mm. what they don't realize is that you're very limited in even your ability to dream at the moment that you're in currently because, again, of your own lived experiences, right? So when I was 23 and I got this first freelance client, nowhere in my mind was I imagining creating a media company someday because to be quite frank, at that moment in time, I don't even think I could have defined to you what a media company is. So it was so far off my radar that I couldn't even try to imagine it if I had wanted to. So even in that moment in time, I still wasn't thinking big enough to be like, oh, I want to run a marketing agency, right? Again, the, the word or the term agency was kind of a new concept to me. So all I could think of was the very next step. All I was thinking in that moment, it wasn't about building a company for me. At that moment, it was simply okay, if I got this client for $300, could I get my second client for 500 or a thousand? And could I upsell this current client a little bit, which I actually did in their second month. They actually renewed with me at $500 a month. So wow, nice. Thank you. (laughs) So yeah, it was, it was very small steps and just kind of leaning a little bit further each time. And because of that, you know, my vision for what could be broadened, 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 but to be where I am today, building this media company, building Cubicle to CEO, it's been such a process of evolution. And there's no way, I know this with certainty, there's no way if you had taken me back to that moment in time five and a half years ago and asked me to try to conceive this thought that it would have come to me. I just don't think it would have been possible without going through everything else that I did leading up to this point. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, 
Thank you to our sponsors. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. You have $2 million in revenue by the age of 28, starting with the $300 freelance project. That's quite a bit. What do you attribute the speed of your trajectory? Because to do that in that short amount of time is incredibly impressive. Most people cannot even fathom that. What, what do you point to as to why you were able to grow that quickly? Uh, speed of action, really. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to that prior point of It's not to say that planning is not beneficial. Of course it is. You should have some sense of what you're doing. But I think too many people get stuck in the planning process where it almost becomes a prison to them. Like they can't Mm. move beyond this planning stage because they're so afraid of what will happen when they try something that may not turn out as they anticipated. And I think for me, I just... I didn't have that. And it might have been naivete. I'm not sure. Like people often say, oh, you must have been so courageous. I'm not sure that it was courage. I think it really was just in some form ignorance. Like I didn't really know (laughs) what to expect. And so because of that, I had nothing to fear. Right. And so it was speed of action and just the willingness to try just the very next thing, not, not to focus so far on like, what does this mean for me, you know, in five years, but what does this mean for me next week? And and can I 
test this, test that, and just that willingness to take quick action allowed me to really accelerate my learning curve in a way that I think some people never get to because they're so focused on trying to do things in quotes the right way. Right. And I also think the, the a corporate structure slows things way down. It's mm-hmm. amazing what one motivated person can get done in a day when oh, you yeah. don't ha- when you don't have to check in <laughs> with anybody. People, yes. you know, like I have a show to dine for that's on PBS and then I have this podcast and people are like, wow, you get a lot done. And I go, yeah, because I don't have anyone to answer to. Right. Yeah. I don't have anyone to tell me no. I, I, you know, you can quickly set things up in a different way than if you had to go through all the layers of bureaucracy that you experienced with your previous job job. So I want to get into the podcast because you do an exceptional job of interviewing people. Many of them are startup women, I've noticed. I don't know if they're exclusively women, are they? It's not exclusive to women, but we really try to use our platform to elevate underrepresented voices in business media. So for us, that does look like a lot of women and women of color. We do have the occasional, you know, man on the show, which we love and appreciate the (laughs) wisdom and perspective they bring. But I think when it comes to making sure that we're bringing voices into the space that typically are not highlighted. It's really important for us that we use our platform that way. How many years have you been doing the podcast? Since July, 2019. So we're coming up on four years this summer. Okay. And these are really people who are willing to be transparent because you ask really tactical questions about finances, how much they're making, advice that they have. You ask them to be transparent. Do you ever get any pushback on that? Or or would you say most people agree to that? Or do do some people say, I'm not going to go on and say that? Like what, what's your ratio of success and failure just getting those folks on the podcast? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked this. I would say for the most part, we've been we've been fortunate that many of our guests share our commitment to transparency and and gladly will answer the questions that are asked of them. But occasionally we do run into, you know, some things where we may ask a question and then later we are asked, you know, before it is published, they they may might get um not like buyer's remorse, but kind of like similar where they feel like maybe they were transparency remorse. I'm not sure if there's a term for that. <laughs> I, I shared too much. Yeah, exactly. They get a little nervous that maybe they share too much. So they'll ask kindly if we can redact a certain piece from their interview, which we always you know, are happy to honor because ultimately we want our guests to feel good about what they're sharing with our community. But you know, I would say it's become less and less frequent that we run into any sort of circumstances where I'm asking a question where someone during the interview is like, you know, I'm not comfortable answering that. Although we always give them that option, mainly because we've set such a precedent with our show now that the people who are attracted to wanting to come on our show typically already have a pretty good understanding of what makes our business show different than most business focused podcasts. And so they almost are coming on our show specifically because they want to get deep and nitty gritty into a certain case study versus maybe what they've done on other shows. Let me ask you, because you are the host of the podcast, who have you learned the most from personally? Because you yourself are in the business world, right? And a lot of the stuff you already know, right? You've obviously learned at great scale, but who did you personally gain the most from the conversation? Mm, That's a wonderful question. There's honestly a lot. Sometimes I as you can tell when you ask me, what is my favorite restaurant's name? (laughs) You have multiple answers. Sometimes my my brain is not so quick to immediately pull out one 
that I've learned the most from per se, but the interview I think so far that I have been most impressed by mm-hmm. was actually with Amy Porterfield. And mm. those who are familiar with the online business space, particularly course creation, might hear that answer and go, oh, well, that seems kind of like a, a gimme because she's a big name in that space. But it truly wasn't about her own success or her brand that attracted me to that interview. It was actually how prepared she truly showed up, like the level of depth that she had prepared with her team on pulling the data that we needed for those questions. And even her willingness to share specifics around. So just for context, this interview was the case study was about her six week pre-launch window that led to a $7 million program launch. And we went so in depth into like in each phase of that pre-launch window, you know, what were the number of leads? What were the conversion rates? How much in ads did you spend? What was the profit margin there? What did you, you know, what did you mess up? Like so granular. And I don't think I could have done as well in pulling out the answers that we were able to pull had she not shown up with so much prep already done. And so that really fed into my creativity in the moment. And I came away from that interview thinking, I think that was one of the best interviews I've ever had the pleasure of moderating from the host side. Yes. Um, so that's the one that really stands out to me. Like I'm very proud of that piece of work. The founder of Create and Cultivate. Jacqueline Johnson. And you yeah. interviewed her. Yes. I, th- I listened to that one and thought you did an exceptional job Thank you. with that interview because she's a really interesting case study of bringing yeah. an idea to life and all that she did to create that company. Yeah. So when people are listening, they're going to say to the, they're probably saying to themselves, "How did she start with three hundred dollars and then then scale it to two million? Are you doing just the podcast, or are you also a marketing firm, and are you selling your services? Like, give us a sense of like how you make your money." Yeah, so it's changed a lot throughout the years. When we started, so I started as you can tell from the stories that we just shared. I started as a freelance social media manager. So it was really just me working with clients in a one-to-one capacity. I started small and then early on actually got um, a big opportunity to run the social media for a a large direct-to-consumer brand in the health food space. And Mm. that really blew up a lot of things for my business in a good way. Mm-hmm. I realized blowing up sounds could be, could be <laughs> misinterpreted. Like a good blowing up. Yes. Yeah, a, good, a good, yeah. <laughs> so that was, you know, how I got my start. And then as I started to hire help to support these accounts, you know, we kind of grew into this very boutique marketing agency. And, and, and was at this point when you started to blow up, is it just you or are you now hiring people to help you? So about for the first year, it was just me, I think Mm -hmm. actually about the first year and a half. And then I did hire help, I think starting spring, late spring of 2019. So about a year and a half into my business. And at that point, that's when we started growing a lot more client accounts. I think at one point we had about a dozen different client accounts that we were managing in different areas, mostly in uh, consumer products. Mm -hmm. And that was growing and and thriving and you know we had very quickly scaled that agency to multiple six figures and we were on that track where if i had kept going it could have honestly i think i could have hit certain revenue marks a lot earlier than i did if i had if i'd stuck with that business model but hold on let me let me stop you there so yeah. it, it sounds like you that could have been in an entire business 
in and of itself, right? Like yeah. you could have just gone down that road. Yes. When you say all, a lot of them were consumer brands, were you reaching out to them or had they by word of mouth found out about you? What, when was that, what's that tipping point like? I think it was, it was definitely a combination of both. So you're actively, you know, letting them know your services and reaching out. Yes. Wow. Okay. So that's an important point for people listening. You know, so yeah. often when you build a company, you expect word of mouth to, to allow you to slowly organically build, but unless yeah. you're actually working the phones and working LinkedIn and letting them know, how are yeah. people going to find out about you? It's not just advertising. It's actually putting, you know, feet to the pavement, so to speak. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. We were always sharing about our client wins and, and sharing what was going on in our own business. And I think that really played to our favor from an early stage. I've always followed the model of building in public. So from very, very early days, like my freelance days, I've been sharing transparently what's been going on in my own business. And I think we've built a lot of trust through the years, through that, through all these different evolutions, like the people who have been with me for years really feel like they've been along for the ride this entire time with us, um, which is really important to me, that relationship that we've cultivated. But to your point, we were growing at a, a fast speed, had a lot of momentum there. And I kind of came to this realization because we were having so much momentum there that the only way I was going to be able to continue scaling this business is to hire a larger team. Mm -hmm. And at that moment in time, I kind of had to ask myself and assess, did I see myself growing like a 10, 20, 30 person agency? Is this the business that I ultimately wanted to build? Mm. And it became very clear to me that the answer was no. I think I found the most joy in creating our own original content rather than creating content on behalf of other brands. Isn't that fascinating? Again, this gets back yeah. to your skill of self-awareness that I can just feel coming from the screen here Thank because you. you know you knew that at USC, you knew what you had to do to set yourself up for success. And here you are, you're absolutely on track to build this amazing company. And you said, whoa, you actually pumped the brakes and said, is that what I really want? I might want something different. Yeah. And, you know, it was scary because at the time, so just for a little bit of reference, I had started the podcast, like I said, in July, 2019, prior to the podcast, the, the name cubicle to CEO had already been created or come to life because that January slash February of 2019, I had started a very small at the time. It was like a group coaching slash course hybrid where I was helping other service providers land more high-end clients at four to five figure monthly retainers because I was getting a lot of questions naturally since I'd built that side of my business so quickly on how are you charging these rates? How are you communicating? Mm -hmm. How are you finding clients? All these things. And so I had started with a very small beta group and by fall of that year, so fall of 2019, almost at the tail end of you know my first two years in business, I had built that course product or coaching product to about $500 a month. So very small potatoes in comparison to what I was earning on the services retainer side with my clients. But there was something in me, Kate, and I can't quite, again, it's like, I'm, I'm not never really sure if it's bravery or just naivete, but there's, whenever I get this gut feeling inside of me, I really strongly trust my intuition. And so mm. I just felt there's something here. I can feel it. And I believe that if I gave myself the time and the space to pour into growing this education side of my business, I think it can really be something, but I knew myself well enough to your point, self-awareness. I knew that if I, for as long as I retained my clients, my priority would always be on them because mm -hmm. they were paying me money to show up rightfully. Right. And I should, right? So 
I kind of made this drastic decision to cut the cord. And I actually ended up letting go of all but one of my clients at the end of 2019. And so because I had really no income coming in, I was, I mean, outside of like a couple hundred dollars in that one remaining client, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, now I have no excuse. I have ample space and time to build a, an evergreen webinar funnel at the time. That's what it was to scale this signature program. So I gave myself 30 days and for 30 days, that's all I did was like build this funnel. And I remember within 90 days of making that big decision, we had grown that one program from $500 a month to $10,000 a month in recurring wow. revenue. Wow. And that kind of is what was the launch pad for what I call phase two or era two of my company, which was the education world of courses and digital products and, and coaching and mentorship, which really was our business model all the way up until about summer of last year when we switched over to a media business model. So uh, we are currently in the third phase of our business, but that's kind of how we've made money up to this point. First of all, thank you for sharing that. I really, really, that actually really is very helpful for the listeners to understand kind of your trajectory. So when you switched over to the media company, was the plan to create the podcast and other content that your sole revenue would be on the ads from the podcast? Not quite. So last summer, so summer 2022, at that point, we had already been producing and creating content consistently for the podcast for three years, right? Mm -hmm. And we had monetized it by that point, but it was not significant enough to cover all of our operating expenses had we just relied on podcast advertising. And this is actually something that I feel really passionate about. It's not something I teach on a lot. I actually just taught a workshop on this topic for the very first time at Kajabi Hero Live last week. But most people, when they think about sponsorships or brand deals, they think in a very limited box, meaning they think, okay, the only way to really make money is for sponsored content being placed on the podcast or on your social media or in your newsletter. When in reality, there are so many different ways that you can really partner with brands. And so yes, podcast monetization is a revenue stream for us, but it is by no means actually the largest revenue stream for us. So we develop a lot more holistic partnerships that kind of leverage all of our different channels. And it's not always sponsored content. Sometimes, you know, we've done like deals where we license our intellectual property to brands before we've done deals where it's more like we're creating education content for the brand. There's mm. all different ways that you can partner with brands beyond just I'll pay you X amount of dollars for you to post about us. So yes, most of our revenue now does come from brand partnerships, but it's not limited to just ads on the podcast. Okay. So I'm going to unpack that for a little bit. I'm going to give yeah. you a real life example. So Please. one one of the sponsors of my television show is Lavazza, the Italian coffee company. Okay. Amazing. And yeah, they, they sponsor the TV show last season and they also sponsor the podcast. That was an offering that I was able to give to them. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you do another entire layer of value add for a brand, meaning like I could go to Lavazza and say, I would love to create beautiful images of food and the coffee and do it here in the US so it shows Americans drinking the Italian coffee and talk about the Italian coffee as a way of life. And that would be an additional revenue that I could either throw into a package or ask and upsell Lavazza. Is that what you're talking about or is it something different? 
that's one of the ways for sure that we have utilized that user-generated content. Because to your point, when you're creating, let's say, original imagery for your sponsor, right? What that essentially does is it removes or or reduces the amount that they would need to normally spend to hire a photographer, videographer, set producer, stylist, like these are the things that a lot of creators don't think about is, yes, you know, we often, and I actually talked about this in my workshop, so I, I'll bring it up here. We often, when we're working with brands, I say we, the royal we, we often <laughs> think the only value that we bring to a brand is the distribution, is the audience, right? Right, right. When you're actually working with a brand, most of the time you should actually be getting paid for three things. The first is the actual content creation itself. Because like I just mentioned, if you're not the one creating the content, someone has to, right? And right. that usually is actually quite a large labor pool. It's it's yes. a lot of people who are have their hands involved in creating creative in, in, in pictures and videos and whatnot. So if you're able to replace that, that has value in and of itself, even if you never put it in front of your audience, because distribution is separate than asset creation. So those are two things you should off the top already be paid for. But the third thing is actually your endorsement and whatever your personal brand and and the brand equity and trust that you've built with your audience or with uh, that's associated with your face. If your face appears in anything, that's really no different than a celebrity lending their face to a skincare brand or, you know, Michael Jordan having his Jordans line with Nike, like there's, right. there's value in your actual name and your face itself. And that also, that's like the talent role, right? In traditional media. And so I always tell creators, you're essentially playing the role of the network, the content team and the talent in one, they're getting three in one. So make sure your value accurately reflects that. No, that's really important. And I think a lot of a lot of content creators, especially women, undersell themselves dramatically, right? And right. they're they're too eager to throw in things when they won't hold firm with what they're worth. How did you what is your relationship with sort of owning what you're worth? You 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 strike me as someone, as you said, the speed of action is your sounds like one of your number one strengths. Right. When did you get confident in really owning your worth, knowing your value, and then asking for it? So I think the first lesson I learned is to ditch the age-old advice of charging your worth. Because what I find problem with in that piece of advice is your worth as an individual, as a human being is I mean, it's infinite. There's no, there's truly no price tag that could encompass your Amen. worth. Amen. Right. And so I find that advice to be a little misleading or confusing. Right. So if you already know your worth is inherent and infinite, then at that point, the only thing you're looking at is what is the value that I'm creating in the marketplace? Like, what is that worth to my end consumer or client? And that no longer becomes a reflection of your worth. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yes. you're able to separate yourself. We're not, if someone rejects your pricing, it's not a direct rejection of you. It's not saying, oh, you're not worth this amount. It's like you obviously didn't, the value that you convey to that client did not match what you were asking for. Therefore, it wasn't a good fit. So you can now go back to the drawing board and say, what was missing here? Did I overshoot the pricing or did I not convey the value enough? Because something is misaligned. Because if you're presenting someone with an opportunity where what they pay you is far less than what they're going to get back in time, money, and energy, which are all forms of value, 
mm-hmm. then it's always going to be a no-brainer for somebody mm-hmm. to say yes. So that's kind of the first lesson I learned that really helped me feel more confident in charging what I believed the value of my work was worth because it it was not, I could detach from great. making it mean something about myself. I think though, the second piece is realizing that not every, in fact, most things I would say in business are not permanent and not as deeply impactful as we think it is. Like Mm -hmm. oftentimes I think people are so scared to like test or push beyond like what they have known in terms of what people are willing to pay them because they're so afraid that if they go, you know, make a huge ask that someone might pass on the opportunity and then you've lost the opportunity. But what I've realized is if you think in an abundant mindset, then if I always believe what is meant for me, can't miss me. So like Mm -hmm. if, if I'm going to ask for something that someone doesn't want to pay me and they, and you know, they pass on the opportunity. I believe there is learning from that in there. I, I don't believe, oh, that's the only opportunity that will ever find me again. So when you get a no, are you like, move on to the next as quickly as possible? Or you are the one who sends that email saying, is there anything else I could do? Is this pricing good? Are you the person who's like sort of needling and going back? Or are you the person who quickly moves on because you know that sometimes it's a numbers game? It depends. It depends I think that most, especially women, we are deeply empathetic people. And I think we have a better read on the energy, even virtually on people than we allow ourselves to believe. Mm-hmm. So if I find that the person that I've been going back and forth with, if I believe we've built some form of rapport, even though this particular deal didn't come through, if I feel that they may be open to providing feedback, I will always ask because I can only do better for them if I right. choose. Right, you, you got nothing to lose at that point, right? You might as well exactly. send the email, right? Exactly. But if I feel that, you know, it, it's just a misalignment from the get-go, it's not even about necessarily a misalignment on the pricing, but like there's just something that's not quite right about this relationship or this deal, then I feel energetically that it would be better for me to just move on. Mm-hmm. I just got a no this morning. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> <Timely>. <laughs> Kate. Yes. I just got a no this morning. And I said, you know, I just wrote a two sentence email back and I said, thank you so much for supporting this. Is there anything I could do that would get this to a yes? That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's all I said, because I thought it would allow them to creatively think. And if yeah. the answer is no, they'll say no. And, and if there is maybe, you know, cause sometimes when we invest a lot of ourselves in a pitch, you know, you hate to end it, but at the same time, it's that tension between moving on and also learning from the experience. And maybe there is a, a point of connection or alignment that could be possible. So yes. I, I will see what they say. I'll report back, Ellen. <laughs> Please do, because I actually think the way you phrase that question is so perfect because like you said, it does kind of force them to stretch their creative muscle. And one thing I do want to point out about that particular question that you asked is sometimes the brand is sitting there knowing exactly what it is that they would have wanted. But because the conversation that you guys somehow ended on ended up being so far off that, that idea, they almost feel weird bringing it up because they don't want to offend you, right? Because they, same vein, want to maintain a healthy relationship with you. And so when you give them that kind of like almost permission to say, hey, in your wildest dreams, shoot for the moon, however wild it may be, just 
Tell me what it is that you would have actually wanted that would have made this so easy for you to say yes to when they feel that they can share like no bars held and they don't feel like they need to put up some sort of, you know, front to not offend you. It actually kind of turns into the most beautiful thing sometimes. So I'm really excited to hear what they say. How do you think you have changed since you started this whole endeavor? I don't want to go all the way back to 2017 because you've kind of had a lot of different iterations. But recently, I'll say since you started the podcast and shifted the trajectory of your career in a different way, how have you personally changed from listening to so many entrepreneurs, hearing the nitty gritty of their business, working on your business? How are you different? Standing strong in what makes us unique, I think, is something that as far as the podcast specific, this really comes to mind. You know, when we started out our podcast, we kind of just did what everybody else did. It was kind of like whoever pitched us, if they seemed like a good enough guest or, you know, that we might enjoy having a conversation with them, we would have them on our show. There was not really any sort of structure in terms of pre-planning was like, oh, you know, just kind of off the cuff, two friends having a chat, which there's nothing wrong with a podcast like that. Right. But I think I was only doing that because it's what was modeled to me in like every business show that I listened to at the time. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is when I got super specific on the vision of what I actually wanted for a show, which these days our tagline for our podcast is we ask successful entrepreneurs the business questions you can't Google. Mm -hmm. And when I realized what I really wanted was that peek behind the curtain, a look at people's books who are building businesses in different industries and really understanding like, what does that actually look like in the moment in a specific season of, you know, how do we capture that moment and look at what's happening in real time in someone's business? I didn't feel like there were, there was enough content around that, especially with financially transparent data. And so when I really leaned into that and set very specific parameters, and even with big names coming and pitching our show, instead of just immediately being like, oh, yes, we want them because you know they their name adds a lot of credibility to our show, us standing in confidence in, in knowing that our first priority is actually to serve our listeners, mm-hmm. not to just build the reputation of the show it really gave me the confidence to actually say no you you may be an amazing person an amazing business woman but you may not be the right fit for our show if you're not willing to meet us and meet our listeners where we need you to meet us for us to provide the value that they've become accustomed to hearing on our podcast weekly and getting so clear on that really has helped so much i think in in building the confidence of understanding that you can, you know, stand in your nose just as strongly as your yeses. You have been so willing to pivot and you have been so willing to follow your gut to wherever it takes you with this business. What is your gut telling you now? Here we are four years into your podcast. Do you yeah. want to keep continue to do this? Are you getting a little burned out? Is there mm-hmm. another direction you'd like to take it? I personally have done the To Dine For podcast for three years. I cannot believe it's three years. That's amazing. But to do a, a weekly podcast is difficult. And it does take a lot of energy and effort. I'm just wondering, where do you want to take Cubicle to CEO or something else? It's a huge labor of love and huge kudos to you, Kate, for three years. That's a milestone many podcasts never reach. 
I do feel you on that. Some weeks are easier than others and yes. some are harder than others, right? Mm-hmm. There are times when I'll be frank that it, it's difficult to show up to get the minutiae done, to make sure, you know, the, the show notes are exactly right, that the intro's written, all of these things. But when I receive a message from a listener that's like this episode or this interview made me think differently, I think... Mm. After all this time, what I've realized actually lights me up is not necessarily when someone's like, oh, I scaled my revenue X amount more, which I think is amazing because it opens opportunities, right? But it's really when someone says, I think differently about something now. I'm like, oh, that's the magic. That's the true magic is when someone's brain expands a little bit in a way that they maybe couldn't have had they not been exposed to someone's story. You look like you have a thought you want to share. Yeah, this just, it just hit me. You know, you always wanted to get into broadcasting. That was your yeah. original dream and that's what you're doing. Yeah, I know in a different medium, but yes, essentially that is what I'm doing. Oh, and- you are very much 2023 broadcasting. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you're talking to someone who yeah. did the local news anchor route. You know, yeah. I was a reporter in small, medium and large cities. I anchored in New York. I anchored in Chicago. I did what you wanted to do, Ellen. I did the exact same route. Yeah. And um you know, what you're doing is the 2023 version of broadcasting without a doubt. And you're thriving. Thank you. That means so much. And I think, you know, when you're talking about like, what do I see for the future of Cubicle to CEO? I mean, I think ultimately we're already in video podcasting. We haven't obviously invested as much in terms of production quality or resources there, but we it exists, right? We right. do have a video version. I think the next level of this podcast would be more of like a studio level quality of on the video side. And I won't lie, Kate, there's, there's definitely still that part of me that if someone was like, what is your dream job? It would still be to host a daytime television talk show. (laughs) like It's still possible. It's possible. Put it out there, write it down. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it happening. Ellen, the the skills that you're honing doing this are broadcasting, you know, you're getting real-time experience every time you, uh, you know, click record and begin a podcast. Because this this quality and this ability to go back and forth and to interview as so as you do so well really is you know the job. So it, who knows who knows what what will be next? <laughs> it might be hard to get people to to Oregon. I will say to get your yes. guests to Oregon, you might have to be think a little more creatively as far as in studio guests. <laughs> that might yes, be a challenge. Hundred percent. Yeah, I know. I've thought about doing like a a little mini country tour where I pick certain hot spots to like bring people to yes. a, a big area and then rent out a studio and just batch a lot of recordings. So I yeah. have thought about that before. Oh, I have an idea. Can I pitch an idea? Yes, please. What about reaching out to create cultivate and see if they do like a, uh, a set for you at one of their events and you Ooh. could interview some of the entrepreneurs and do like mini vignettes. That would be really cool. You know, we're actually testing not quite on that scale, but we're testing a similar concept this fall, actually, at my friend Jordan Gill's Make Your Mark Live event, we're doing a pop-up podcast and we're going to record some of the attendees and and just kind of test what that looks like in a live activation. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I will continue to listen to your podcast. I've enjoyed this time so much, Ellen. And I just really feel like you are doing something really unique in your ability to to have other entrepreneurs be so transparent and we should all be more transparent with each other. So thank you, Ellen. Thank Thank you for being on this podcast today. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. 
You can find us on Instagram at To Dine For TV and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the podcast, American National, Lovatsa, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.